We often hear about automation, but there is a robotic 3D printing revolution coming to a supply chain near you. I'm not talking about Terminator-style revolution where the robots beget themselves, but one where machine learning and process improvement creates robotic workforces capable of building the extraordinary. But importantly for my audience, can I eventually 3D print a truck? We'll find out and more in this episode of Loaded and Rolled. Welcome to Loaded and Rolling. I'm your host, Thomas Watson. Automation and machine learnings are hot topics in the freight tech world, but while most of this involves software, the manufacturing supply chain relies heavily on both hardware and software solutions to build the future. Now, for supply chain professionals, it's important to know what happens upstream and downstream between truckload orders. Luckily for us folks, joining me to talk about how robotics and 3D printing are revolutionizing manufacturing is Gil Mayron, founder and CEO of Cobot Nation. Gil actually pioneered consumer 3D printing back when he was a founder and CEO of Botmill 3D and even sold the first fully assembled consumer 3D printers. Fun fact, he additionally created the first licensing deal with 3D printing with companies such as Sony, Viacom, the NBA, DreamWorks, uh, just to name a few. I want my 3D printed Shrek, sir. Welcome, Gil. Thank you for having me. Happy to have you on as well. Uh, if there was the equivalent of a meme from Zoolander, everyone talks about automation and trucking like it's so hot right now. But you guys are actually doing the real thing. For folks unaware, uh, describe a little bit about your background and what uh, Cobot Nation does. Sure. So my background, uh, I come from 3D printing. So I had the first consumer 3D printer. We sold that company to 3D Systems, which was the largest 3D printer company at the time. Uh, with that, though, uh, a little segue into automation would be the following. So 3D printing, you only have so many ways of going about 3D printing something, right? So you have heat, you have chemical. Uh, that's pretty much it. And they all have their rate of uh, going about doing things. And, and it really just becomes very finite. So 3D printing is, is inherently slow. So some other ways of speeding it up, aside from trying to figure out the actual way of making a 3D print, uh, would be something like automation. And if you speed something up by one second here, it might add up to minutes there, hours there, could be years later on. Uh, and so automation was just a very, um, uh, very compelling place to be in when the time was right. We felt that the time was right now when we started to see very large similarities between 3D printing and uh, automation with the robotic arms. So in 3D printing, we saw the Industrial patents start to expire. We saw uh, RepRap, R-E-P-R-A-P, uh, the project come out. They were making the consumer 3D printers. Well, they were making 3D printers accessible to people, right? Democratizing 3D printing. Uh, we decided to get the, the, the ability to um, make the first fully assembled 3D printer. I partnered with Adrian Bauer for that. Uh, he was the guy who originated RepRap. Uh, and then uh, fast forward to today with uh, automation, well, what you see here is you have a lot of the industrial companies with the industrial robotic arms, a uh, very similar scenario. They've been around for a little while. Those patents are going to be coming up at some point. At the same time, you have very similar things happening where you have smaller robots coming out. And that's not really something that it's not a surprise uh, to people like me and other people who have been in 3D printing or in other industries where you see things start to come up like that. Um, so what happens is you have smaller robots come out. You've got these players that try to go out to the same resellers that were taking on the industrial robots. Those people don't want to take it. And then you have these players with these smaller robots that go directly to the customers. 
And lo and behold, now you have a new industry, new companies that come out that start to consolidate the whole industry. And this is where we play. And, you know, when we bring uh, some order to a little bit of chaos, it's, uh, it's how we operate over here. So for, for folks like unaware, you can kind of, uh, I usually think of 3D printing, like you said, with just the single thing that you're printing like plastics or some people are telling me foods now, but incorporating the robot arms and like the processes of scale, is that kind of the game changer mm-hmm. in that I'm assuming with 3D printing, while something's taking a while, you can use the robotic arms to automate other factors or how, how, what's the best way to mesh these two things? Sure. So, so, well, I mean, look, automation came about as, as for me, uh, due to a way to try to find ways of increasing the speed for 3D printing in order for people to mass utilize 3D printing. So to date, what we have in our office over here, we have an HP Multi-Jet Fusion MJF 3D printer. It's the only print. Okay. We have a little bit of technical difficulties, folks. But for those of you who will be catching up with us, uh, talking a little bit about Gil's experience with Cobalt Nation and 3D printing, which I think is really fascinating because uh, especially if you want to check out a really cool example of 3D printing I found uh, would be the show Peripheral on Amazon. Now, this one's cool because the folks who were doing Westworld, I think Nolan and Lisa Joy, one of the Nolans, not the older Nolan, the uh, younger Nolan, uh, they had this kind of future come from a book. Obviously, Hollywood's working on that. But uh, in it, the 3D printing was utilized in this small Appalachian town. And so it's always been a fun, fascinating topic, especially in the 3D printing field. I always wondered if we're going to see large-scale manufactured with 3D printing and integrations or if we're going to have a situation where you know I can put one of these puppies in my uh, garage or something like that. There's a really cool... We had a conversation earlier, actually, in the podcast a few months ago uh, with Hans Christian. And that was one thing he was talking about is uh, kind of how the supply chain can uh, you know, evolve, uh, the potential for nearshoring and the potential for us to actually utilize it. I think that's such a fascinating topic uh, that we don't really pay attention to. In, in the trucking field, we always think about how, well, it's going to have to move long distances on a uh, 18-wheeler. I got to put it in a 53-foot drive-in trailer. But uh, you know, there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes. Uh, especially in the manufacturing centers and up and downstream on the supply chain, uh, where you're going to see situations where we may have the, the nature of trucking uh, change. You know, these long haul routes, short haul and tweeners. For those unfamiliar, uh, your tweener routes are like 750 miles. You call them tweeners like that just because uh, it, it's a little bit over what a driver normally can do. We think like five to 600 miles a day. So tweener is just that weird middle child kind of load. Your shorter hauls, like if you want to say true short haul, like 100, 150 miles. And then, you know, average length of haul can be between three and 400 if you're on the East Coast. And then you're out West, you know, we get, we're talking about long haul, you know, probably a thousand miles plus. So, you know, looking at the nature of supply chains and uh, hopefully if we can get Gil back on, uh, we'll dive deep into that, of course. But until then, Uh, We'll talk a little bit about how uh, not only 3D printing and manufacturing in the supply chain is changing things, but, uh, you know, look at examples like Tesla, who heavily utilizes uh, robotics in the manufacturing process, as well as others, folks like Ford and GM. So, you know, there is some applications uh, that can be done, especially trying to make class aids. We're talking about the tractor trailers, uh, you know, the tractors themselves, your Kenworths, your Peterbilts, your Freightliners at all. And it's going to be really fascinating stuff. But in the meantime, while we are waiting for uh, technical stuff to work, we're going to go into a, a segment I like to call I Can Trucking and So Can You. I've spent over seven years suffering in the logistics and supply chain world. 
whether it be dispatching drivers, getting yelled at by drivers, being a broker, getting yelled at drivers and shippers, or being even an account executive and getting yelled at by shippers and drivers. You'll see the common theme, in fact, usually involves friction. So, you know, a lot of the technology stuff we're talking about uh, is how to manage that friction and how to convince everybody who is naturally skeptical of one another uh, to make it work. So, fun facts. First one you want to make sure while we're working on getting this. Okay, cool. We got Sorry Gil back that. on, folks. Looks like I lost you guys there. <laughs> <laughs> no, no worries. We've, uh, um, I think I gave you the correct link. I had a whole backup spiel called I Can Trucking and So Can You where I just ramble about deadhead and utilization, but uh, I promise you we were much more excited I, I do, for the three. I, I do have a fun fact for you. So my first company, uh, I went to, to Florida Atlantic University uh, within a few weeks over there, I found out I had to do some sort of an internship, uh, went to go work at my, in my dad's office building uh, for this one gentleman who was willing to give me an internship, throws a book on my table, says, how to be a freight broker. Do you know what my first company was? I took that uh -oh. book. I learned it for about two <laughs> weeks. I left. I told my dad, hey, here's what I want to do. And we started a freight brokerage company called No Way Freight. And within the first year, we had 50 agents. And uh, we were going on the truck load boards and we were building our own load boards. And uh, long story short, uh, at the end of the first year, we had a lot of people working. Um, we had one Christmas tree company and we had brokered with a few of the large uh, trucking companies out there. I'm not going to name their names, but long story short, a few of them backed out a day before and the Christmas no. trees ended up uh, drying up and uh, it was a very bad deal. And uh, I said, you know what? I'm done. Got out of it. And uh, then I started to get into freight leads. And I was one of the first guys out there where we put ads online where, you know, you want to get a moving quote. And I got very lucky. It was at a time where you can, you know, you could do a lot of spamming if you wanted to. And uh, that's where we got the seed money to do the 3D printer. Holy cow. It all turned around. I, that's one thing I love it about trucking. Is <laughs> full circle. That's amazing. Trucking, right? and <laughs> How, uh, when you did the first 3D print and we first started it, what was it like compared to now? I mean, was it like the Wild West on trying to just prove the concept? Well, I mean, even today, people don't believe that I had a 3D printer company. Back in the day, you would show them a 3D printed piece and they would say, that's, there's no way that was made with a 3D printer. Um, you know, keep in mind, those consumer 3D printers, originally, they were not called 3D printers. They were called like personal manufacturing device or, you know, hot glue gun on some motor. And so... <laughs> They were called a whole bunch of different things, and somebody decided to coin the term 3D printer, and, and it worked out. So just like in the, you know, in the same way like a, it's a laser cutter, Glowforge, 3D laser yeah. cutter. Well, no, it's a laser cutter, but you know, hey, look, you know, you, you put a term there, and it, it works sometimes. So yeah. While, uh, while we're waiting for you to come back, uh, there's a show on Amazon called Peripheral. It's based off of a book, and it's by the, the, the folks who did Westworld. But in it, in the small Appalachian town, they had a 3D printer store where they had racks and racks and racks, and you would just download the schematics and they would make it. That was one thing I was curious about is, when you look at the future of 3D printing as well as manufacturing, is that something where we're gonna see a small scale application or is this something where I'm gonna look for like a gigafactory, kind of like how Tesla yeah. may do it? Yeah, so uh, I, I will say this, especially with the stuff that, that I'm doing now, uh, there's no doubt about it in my mind that we're going to see 3D printing much more a part of mass customization. And mass customization really is almost like a holy grail for 3D printing, and that is the following. So let's say you have uh, you know, cookie jars, okay? You have uh, 10,000 cookie jars, and you're putting them for sale online. Um, and these 10,000 cookie jars, they're all the same though, right? 
And the reason why they're all the same is because that's just what works for you. You're able to ship them out at a certain speed. It just works. Well, what you're going to see in the future is that for the same speed, for the same price, for the same everything, you'll have 10,000 cookie jars, but every single one will be unique to the person who's buying it. And that is the holy grail of 3D printing. Can it play a part in the end parts uh, that we have for consumers? And I think we're starting to get there very, very quickly. Uh, and especially since you start to see people melt 3D printing and other types of manufacturing together. So, for example, 3D printing and vacuum forming. Well, you know, if I take 3D printing and I make a positive and a negative, I take vacuum forming. Well, now suddenly I can pour something in there and I can make a mold. There's so many things you can do to speed up 3D printing but still allow for customization for the consumer. And that's not just for a product like a candle or chocolate. You're talking about products that are metal casted, right? So you're talking about products that can literally go directly onto a truck. You don't have to worry about if it was 3D printed in the right material. All you know is that you're casting it in the right material. You can have that done by a place that's completely certified. So there are ways that we're starting to get there, and I think we're going we're to get there very, very quickly now. And so I think that's fascinating because supply chains may move around towards you're shipping the raw materials for the printers or you're shipping either maybe the printing equipment to a certain location. Is that kind of what opens up the door with this with this technique and process to where we're not just set, you know shipping it overseas, warehousing it, waiting, hoping someone buys it? Uh, what kind of doors does that open for folks if you're trying to even imagine how we're going to transport this stuff? Uh oh, he sneezed and he knocked it out. We're going to have him back, folks. This one is I blame our uh, EPB fiber optics. We need to find the router and like recharge it, but. I was curious about the food ones too, uh, getting the food 3D printed. Like if you can make the molds, then I think you can possibly make like things for candy. That's what all the other fun ones uh, talking about like 3D printed foods. You know, I wonder if it's still just plastic. So we're gonna keep an eye on that uh, as well, just because I like this future state where you can basically have a mobile 3D printing in the back of a tractor trailer, perhaps. Uh, that's another fascinating element to it. but. Uh, we're going to see if we can get him pulled in as well. Finally, all my Sirius XM radio show stuff has finally come into handy, uh, making sure that I can buy airtime. Folks, if you don't know, by the way, when we are definitely live, uh, it, it can get kind of fun. But if you do a two-hour radio show, it's a lot less fun than doing a 26-minute show. So then it gets a little bit easier and more confident, confident in terms of figuring out something to riff on. But, you know, while we are waiting, of course... Uh, a few other fascinating... Boom! Ah, there we, we go. We got them. Lots of questions there. <laughs> I was thinking about food. You're talking about making molds and vacuum sealing. Is it just plastics yeah. and fabs right now, or are we going to start seeing 3D printed food like the, the future has been foretelling me? Well, I mean, look, uh, at 3D Systems, we, we bought a company a company called Z Corp, and then we found a, a husband and wife. I forget what their names were, but they, they were architects by trade. And what they did was they took that Z-Corp printer, it was a powder printer, it used a gypsum powder, and they replaced the powder with sugar. And you can look back on, on some things that we did way back when at 3D Systems, but a sugar 3D printer, uh, and, and they were printing it, and it was making a few things for, you know, cakes and stuff like that. But it really didn't take off the way that you would think that something would take off. And we looked into chocolate and things like that, uh, and again, that really didn't take off. We did see some other printers where it's more like deposit, deposit devices where it's, you know, taking one item and another item and depositing it. That probably is more relatable to automation than it would be the 3D printing. I'm not sure how 3D printing will play a part in food, but I will say this. When it comes to making molds and then doing stuff with food, 
boy, does that speed up the process of making something customized to the person. The question, though, becomes, is that too much of a novelty or is there something really there to be made? If I were to take the molds and now make something that's not food, you know, like metal casting and things like that, that's a totally different ballgame. Well, it's expensive for the casting. I was kind of curious about that. There was a book that uh, talked about uh, salt, fats, and sugars by this New York Times person. They said that with one of the problems they had was when they designed these items, it'd be really hard to 3D print probably because even if you were off by a little bit on your salt or your fat content, you can make like cheese that's taste like metal. So I'm assuming that's, right. that's probably yeah. why. And not only that, I mean, let's, let's, also, let's also be real here. I mean, 3D printing has only been around for about 60 years. So, I mean, all the materials out there, everything, it, it's uh, very, very difficult to say what's going to happen, especially when it comes down to the materials that are done with the printers that take, you know, like the resins and stuff like that. I am very careful. We don't use any of those printers over here in this office. Uh, we don't use any of those parts for end customers. We only use the stuff where we know it's a certified material. Uh, it's a very, it, it is the wild west in 3D printing still when it comes down to that stuff. Well, the resins, I remember hauling resins, little pellets and stuff. And they would, my favorite part was they would not tell you where it came from. They called them blind loads, as I'm sure you remember. And so they said, here's some bills that actually came from this place. How do you know your pellets are good? So is that some of the concerns when we're printing this stuff? It's like, where, where this, what's in this? Yeah, no, I think it's very interesting. First off, you have no body out there that is overseeing the materials that are going out into the public, right? So if I made a new filament and I put it on Amazon, there is nobody stopping me from whatever is in there. I can put whatever I want in the package. There's not a single place out there that's going to test it before it goes to the public. And the person getting it, well, these people are very ballsy right now. They're going to take these filament printers and they're going to make end products that they're going to sell, right? And they're ba they're going based on, well, this person said that this material is supposed to be that. Well, you know, when I tell people that, you know, PLA, polylactic acid, right? So so let's, let's break that down a little further. That That's one of the very commonly used materials in 3D printing. Uh, it, it's fermented corn, okay? So it has a little bit of a sweet smell to it. Now, why did that come into play? Well, first off, ABS was being used at the beginning with these filament-based printers, and ABS, uh, it warps a lot. So you really need a heated chamber, uh, and when you get into really the mechanics of the whole thing, you're almost uh, you're almost encroaching, on, you're almost getting very close to like where Stratus is with their printer and their patents. So you don't want to go too hot, but you're getting pretty close to it. And so when it comes down to it, and you're looking at all these filaments and everything like that, it really just doesn't make sense uh, for some of those things to be, <laughs> to be out there uh, the way that they are. But PLA, let me give you an example. You have one company in the world that owns a patent to PLA. That's NatureWorks LLC. So when I see that some companies are having a really difficult time getting PLA pellets and other companies are just printing PLA like it's not, you know, we have so much PLA available for you to buy it really begs a question as to what's going on. And by the way, just for, so, so that the folks know what this is, PLA, that's the most widely used thing in like uh, plastic utensils. I mean, I, uh, McDonald's utensils, right? The plastic forks and knives. Most of that stuff is PLA. PLA does not warp as much as ABS. Why? Well, it's got a different temperature. It's way easier to print with. But at the end of the day, is that something that you really want to put out there as end use? No, it is not something that's supposed to be used for end use not the way that is printed. So the, the PLA stuff, which is like the plastics of plastics, is that the one with the corn, right? It's made through a, a form right. of... No Fermented way. corn, polylactic acid, yeah, one? PLA. And it's, nope, nope, huh. polylactic acid and PLA, and it's made by one company, NatureWorks LLC. 
So uh, usually with plastics, I think petroleum-based. So if I'm 3D printing, do I want like a petroleum-based one? Or what's the best thing I can get a hold of to make sure I'm not going to like mess, mess it up? Well, I'll put it this way. Right now, you, you have a lot of different ways of going about printing. I mean, we've printed with, uh, I mean, we've tested so many different things. I used to work with a company called Polymaker out of Shanghai. Uh, still know the owner quite well. And so he and I would go back and forth with a whole bunch of different uh, recipes of printing things. We, at one point, we were making a, uh, a material that would be very easy for us to cast. Uh, but all in all, what you're really looking at are materials where are you making it viscous enough where it's going to be able to print at that 220, 210? Uh, and if not, do you need to have a different extruder? And again, you're going on these extruders. You're going to make them hotter. It's going to get more expensive. At some point, you're out of the realm of consumer 3D printing. You know, does it even make sense to go with like a PLA at that point? So ultimately... You know, you've got a big question on certain methods of 3D printing. I think you have certain methods that will just win out over others. Uh, and I don't think the filament-based 3D printer uh, is going to win at all at this point in time. And i got to ask here, since you all are so in-depth in the game, what are some of the cooler projects you've worked on or uh, any cool case studies that uh, you could share? Oh, yeah. This is some fascinating stuff. We're going down the rabbit hole right now. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, well, let's put to automation. So we're working with the largest meat producer, uh, in the world. And when it comes to automation, uh, we do certain things with them that I don't think anybody else on the planet would have ever been able to accomplish. We, we have a team here at Cobot Nation where we have programmers, we have mechanical engineers, we've got mechanical engineers with electrical ability, with programming ability. We've got guys who are able to really think on the fly and also deal with the customers as well. Uh, and so when you bring it, break it down to it, some of the stuff that we're doing for the meat processor, like injecting a cow carcass with CO2, uh, which softens the meat before it gets broken down even further. This is not news to anyone. This is just what happens. You know, we're, we're really eliminating uh, people from the workforce. Uh, and when we tell people how many people we're, we're going to be eliminating, it's, it's surprising for them. And I think it's going to happen very, very quickly. But just keep in mind, everything that we do. So, for example, if we're working with, you know, we're making custom bull feeders. Uh, and if people don't know that it is a bull feeder, Let's say you would take a whole bunch of, you know, screws. You throw them into a bowl. This bowl vibrates very, very quickly. And it's got almost like a circular pattern around it, almost like a, a track that it goes up and up and up and up and up. And so what happens is these screws start to align themselves. And they align themselves to the point where it then could be extracted one by one and indexed for then the robot to be able to do something with it, right? And so these are things that we do that very few other places will ever, ever do or take the risk on doing. Uh, there's a very large amount of R&D that goes into it, which means a lot of cost that goes into it, a lot of resources that goes into it. But at the end of the day, these are the things that we do that make us different uh, than anybody else. We're able to use 3D printing in a way that nobody else is able to use. We're able to confidently uh, portray to the customer why it is that certain methods that we use are good for them, no matter what the environment, could be a food-safe environment too, as opposed to other methods. Uh, so for example, let's say we're using aluminum in certain instances. Well, we know that if we 3D print with our end parts, with MJF, that it's way stronger than aluminum in certain instances, the way that we go about doing it. Uh, but for the most part, everything that we're doing, the end of arm tools that we do, we have a, a good partner of ours, SMC Nematics, the largest uh, pneumatic component manufacturer in the world. Uh, they partner with us exclusively for the stuff that we do. They make uh, the majority of our end of arm tools. Uh, with those, we do a mixture between machining and a mixture between 3D printing. There's no other way of going about it. Um, I'm sure that I'll be able to share with you after the fact. I can share some yeah, videos and yeah. stuff with you guys that you guys can probably like throw up there and things like that. But these are really intricate things 
that oh uh, one more thing the robot arm the actual components to the robot arm like electrical components we 3d print plenty of that stuff um we 3d print everything we could possibly 3d print because it saves us an immense amount of time saves us money uh we couldn't care less about what the material cost is for 3d print it could be 100 times more than what it is now we would still be completely in the green for whatever it is that we do um but most importantly it allows us to support what we do for the customer 24 7 so because Final we thoughts. make everything because yep because we design everything we're able to support everything which is another big value proposition that the customer can't get anywhere else. 30 seconds left. How can folks reach out and learn more? Sure. Uh, reach me on LinkedIn, Gil Mayron. You can reach me on uh, Instagram. I think it's gil.mayron or gilbot. Uh, you can reach me through the website. You can reach me on my email, gil at cobotnation.com. You can reach anybody else at this company. And uh, no problem. We have about 10 people over here. So uh, I'm sure at some point it'll get to me. But uh, any which way, no problem. Perfect, Gil. Thanks for coming on. This was by far one of the coolest interviews I've done and looking forward to seeing what y'all up to. Thomas, thank you very much, man. That's going to be it for this episode. We have about 10 seconds left, though. Strap in, folks. You'll see me next Tuesday as well. You can definitely check out the folks at Cobalt Nation, though. Amazing stuff going on. Join us next Tuesday. That's it for today. I'm Thomas Watson. We'll do it live.